right, turning your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is our text for this morning. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians chapter 2, I'll direct your attention to the second chapter beginning in the first verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bow our heads in a moment of silence as we come before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy are you. We humble ourselves before your majesty and glory. We honor and praise you. And as we come before your word, give us humble hearts that we may tremble before thy word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us today. We pray that you would use your word to exhort, to convict, to encourage, and correct us. O oh Lord, We pray that you'd take the scales away from our eyes. Give us eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. We pray that your grace would be real to us. We pray, Father, that this would not just be another exercise in religious duty, but that we would truly come hungering to hear from you today and that you would feed us, O Lord. O thou great Jehovah, feed us till we want no more. We pray, O Lord God, that you would be honored and glorified in this sermon, and that you would reveal yourself in a mighty way. I am your servant, O Lord, and I do thy will. Pray that you'd overshadow my mind and my heart, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. Carry me along, O Holy Spirit, to do your work. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So Reformation Sunday is today, and in Reformation Sunday, we are called to um, remember the events. It's usually the last Sunday in October, um, commemorating it was on October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, as it was known, before it's the Halloween that we have today. Um, It was the day before um, All Saints' Day in Roman Catholicism, where Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic priest in Wittenberg, Germany, 
uh, decided and God called him to, um, to protest the Catholic Church. And in that protest, he went to uh, the Church of Wittenberg early that morning and nailed his 95 theses. And, and so why is that all important? Why do we make a big fuss over it every year? Well, it's because we stand in the Reformed tradition of worship and of evangelical Christianity. And um, those traditions that were established, the five solas, uh, later on in the canons of Dort, uh, the five points of Calvinism as we know, um, these are all um, essential parts of defining our doctrinal positions and our tradition of worship. And with that said, we come to this passage today that speaks of the grace of God. It speaks of the reality that we are saved by grace alone. And in that, uh, that fundamental truth of the Reformation, it also concludes our But God series. Because I think of all the But Gods in the But God series, uh, this is probably one of the most powerful as it really demonstrates a stark contrast of who we were before we came to Christ and who we are now in Christ. The contrast couldn't be more stark. And I think that what we really have to understand is that there are really only two peoples in this world. And in Ephesians chapter 2, later in the text, Paul makes it so clear that you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You are either part of the people of God or you're not part of the people of God. There are not multiple peoples of God. There is one people of God. You are either children of obedience and of the light or you are children of darkness and of sin and disobedience. And so no matter how you look at it, we see that uh, our text today brings us to this this, this breaking point, the but God that splits those who are in darkness and those who are light. What distinguishes? Where's the dividing line? That dividing line is the but God. It, it's God acting on behalf of those whom he predestined before the foundations of the world, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus Christ. It is in that predestinating grace that God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of of light. And I'll be speaking more about this concept of darkness and light later on today. But I want us to come to this passage with a, with a sense of understanding the, the gravity of the grace of God and what a difference it makes in our lives. I, I, I look at this text and one thing comes out apparent to me if you look in, in chapter 2 going down to verse 7. It says so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is immeasurable. There's no limit to it. It is boundless and it is lavished upon God's elect. It is infinite. And I think that is so important because when you understand the Reformation and why the Protestant Reformation took place, it was because of the idea and the belief that grace was limited and it was designated and relegated by the Pope who held the keys to the kingdom of God. It was the Pope who dispensed of grace from the treasury of merit and it was his will to either dispense grace or retain grace. During that period of time, people would pay money for grace in the forgiveness of their sins through indulgences. I'm not going to get into the, all the depths of the Reformation today, but I do want to jump into this, this idea, this last but God, and see how it fits in. And, and, and we've got to look at what life was like before the but God intervened and what life like is after 
And so the first thing we need to see is our need for grace, our need for grace. Um, Paul couldn't paint a more horrible picture, a more discouraging picture, a more hopeless picture than what he paints in verses 1 through 3 as he's inspired by the Spirit to describe our condition before the grace of God came into our lives. He says, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. Dead is dead. It doesn't say you were sick in your sins and trespasses. You were dead. It describes the spiritual condition of all those outside of Christ, dead in our sins and trespasses. And that's a very powerful word, and it brings to mind of what that actually means. It's an, it's an absolute term. Paul's not saying you're in danger of dying, but he says we were dead in a very real and present sense. And that death is spiritual death. It, it describes our human nature. We are dead to God. We're dead to the Spirit. We're dead to heavenly matters. No different than a, a, a physically dead person cannot respond to stimuli, neither can a spiritually dead person. If you go to a funeral home uh, and you step into a wake and you look at a, a, a dead body in a box, you could touch it, push it, prod it, you could burn it, you could put an ice cube. No matter what you do, that body will not respond to any stimuli because it's dead. The nervous system is shut down, the brain is shut down, the heart is shut down. And in the same way, when we talk about being spiritually dead, we're talking about we are completely frozen and dead into the things of God. We cannot respond to God. We cannot react to God. We, we cannot hear God. We cannot behold God because we are blind. We are deaf. We are hardened. It is a terrible state to be in. John Stott describes it as a life without God is a living death. And those who live it are dead even though they are living. We're basically spiritual zombies. Ephesians 4.18 describes this nature of spiritual death as having hearts that are hardened, minds that are darkened, and being alienated from the life of God. Those three terms describe spiritual death. You have a hard heart. You cannot uh, uh, sense or, or uh, react to the things of God. Your mind is in darkness, and you are alienated from God. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. Right? You are not just dead, but you are dead in trespasses and sins. Sin is what kills us. And sin kills us in two ways, both original sin and actual sin. Right? So we all inherit a sinful nature from our first parents, from Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You cannot change the fact that our natures are desperately wicked, we are born into sin. Uh, in Psalm uh, um, uh, 53, um, um, oh, Psalm 50, I'm sorry, I got mixed up. When, when David cries out that we were born in sin, we were all born with a sinful nature. We came into this world sinful. There is no uh, part of our being in which we have goodness in us. There is no one good, no, not one, Romans 3.11 says. And then there's actual sin. Not only are we born with sinful nature, but we continue to sin. We, we don't stop sinning. We, we continue in it. The two words used here are trespasses and sins. Um, in the Greek, uh, paraptoma is the word trespass. It means to cross a boundary. God sets boundaries. He sets boundaries of what's right and wrong and good and bad. When we cross those boundaries, we violate 
his commandments, we are in sin. We, it's the same idea that there are laws in the land, and those laws tell us what the boundaries are. If you cross those boundaries, you're a criminal. And then the second word, sin, is uh, hamartia in Greek, and it's an archery term, and it literally means missing the mark, missing the mark. Anyone who's ever went target shooting or uh, archery uh, practice knows that you have the bullseye, you're playing darts, you want to get it in the middle, and if you come just short of that, it's not good enough. And that's the whole point. We are not good enough. There is a, a falling short of the glory of God. And so these two words together, both positive, demonstrate the positive and negative aspects of sin. It means that before God, we are both rebels and criminals. We cross the line where we're not supposed to, and we are miserable failures. We are morally deficient before God. To get an idea of what spiritual death looks like, Paul describes four aspects of the natural human condition to show us what being spiritually dead looks like. The first is we follow the course of this world. And in all three of these, I want you to notice it describes people who are in bondage. And I want you to realize that because Christ said to us in John chapter 8 that we are all slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us that prior to the liberating grace of God, we are all in bondage to sin. And sin manifests itself in three different ways as described here in the text. The first is we are in bondage to the world. Uh, we are following the course of this world system, the text says. That is cultural bondage. The word cosmos is used 186 times in the New Testament. And it is to refer to the sphere of influence and social value system of the world compared to the kingdom of God. It is, it is what we may describe as the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. Those without Christ are enslaved to the social and moral value systems of this age. They cannot think for themselves. Uh, it is people who conform. It is people who just go with the flow. And today, many people are in bondage. You cannot ignore the cultural bondage today that grasps so many people. Um, whatever the zeitgeist is, whatever is popular, whatever is trending on Twitter, whatever is politically correct, people just go with the flow. They want to fit into their camp and they want to be accepted by the world. And so we, we just go along with it uncritically and without really giving consideration to if it's good or bad or right and wrong. Frederick Nietzsche described this malady of the human condition, and he was an atheist, um, as, as describing people as sheeple. We are just sheep that blindly follow. And of course, that didn't originate with Nietzsche because the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all chosen our own way. We are all foolish sheep. And we simply follow, as Nietzsche would call it, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And I could tell you this much, the spirit of the today, age today is utterly wicked. We live in an utterly wicked time, not to say that any other time in history was not sinful, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are seasons in history where times are better than others, where, where wickedness is more pronounced uh, more than others. And we live in a time where wickedness is very fashionable and it is the dominating influence in our society. And so people who are dead in sin are in cultural bondage. Secondly, people who are dead in sin are in bondage to Satan. It says they follow the prince of the power of the air. They're, they're disciples of Satan. 
Just as we are called to follow Christ and to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, the world is following the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And 1 John 5.19 tells us the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. He is the prince of darkness, the prince of this world, Christ says. He has dominion over this, this cosmos, this evil world system. And, and although people don't realize that they're serving Satan, they are. Now, Satanism is on the rise today, if you don't know this or not. Harvard University, the most prestigious Ivy League university in America, is now very vocal about their days of Satan worship. They have whole days set aside to worship Satan. They have a Satanist club, and it's very popular, and it's accepted. There are Satan statues going up all across the country. There are people who openly worship Satan. But <laughs> the reality is, though, while it's true, some knowingly follow Satan, there are far more who unwittingly follow Satan. That is because by virtue of following and living for the spirit of this age that is hostile and contrary to Christ, they are under the devil's influence. John MacArthur puts it this way, because they share his nature of sinfulness and, and exist in the same sphere of rebellion against God, they respond naturally to his leading and the influence of his demons. They are on the same spiritual wavelength. And quote, and that spiritual wavelength is described in our text as the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. I want you to think about that for a minute. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. As Christians, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, we are sealed with the spirit. It's the spirit that energizes us and that conforms us to the image of Christ. While the, same, while the Holy Spirit is energizing believers... We're told that the spirit, this spirit of, 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 of disobedience is in the work of the children of disobedience. What is this spirit? The spirit is referred to as the spirit of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it is described also as the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. It'll be personified in the end times where one human being will encapsulate all that is evil and wicked and be the leader, Satan's answer. Just as uh, the Lord Jesus was, was the uh, God in the flesh, Satan will have his own answer to that. He will have a, a, a Satan in the flesh who will be a false Christ, a false prophet, and will lead all those under uh, his dominion in the last days. And then finally, we are in bondage to the flesh. We are in bondage to the flesh. We all live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Listen to that, those words that Paul says there in Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 3. We all are living in the passions. The, the, the passions mean the desires, the, the strong urges, the lusts of our flesh. And we carry out what? Whatever the mind and the body want. People that are dead in sin are dominated by one thing, whatever their carnal nature wants. We live in a society today where people are driven. We're driven by materialism. We're driven by sex. We live in a sex-crazed society. We live in a very materialistic society. We live in a very impulsive society where we just, we want what we want. We want it now. We want it yesterday. And this is happening 
in the church as well, because so many have given into the flesh. We're not picking up our crosses. We're not crucifying the flesh. Passions are defined for us as that which is a carnal craving and appetite. And when people are dominated by those desires, they are slaves. 1 John 2.16 describes it in a triad, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the primal forces that govern all unbelievers. Finally, if that weren't enough, we are all condemned. Paul goes on to describe the human condition prior to salvation. He says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice the past tense, were. You and I were all once part of this. We were all there. We were all in the flood of destruction and sin. We were all in rebellion of God and we were all under condemnation. We were by nature children of wrath. That means the final realization of spiritual death is nothing more than eternal death. And that is to be condemned by God forever. It is to be burned up in the lake of fire, in the second death. It is where judgment is brought and God's wrath will burn hot against us forever and ever in the eternal fire. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us that we are in a desperate situation apart from Christ. You can't get right with God on your own. There is no way you can earn God's favor. No way you can be religious enough. No way you're going to get to heaven on your own. There's no way you're escaping hell on on your own. The only thing that we can achieve through our miserable lives is to earn the judgment of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You see, spiritual death equals eternal death. And that death is all we have earned. Now that you see how desperate the situation is, the question becomes, what could we do about it? If we can't do anything, what is our hope? And that's where the two most powerful words in the Bible come in, which we've been looking through. Verse 4, but God. But God, but God. If it wasn't for the but God, we wouldn't be here today, would we? And this but God is very powerful because it stands in the middle of this horrible portrait of mankind and brings us now to the reality of God's saving grace. Now, I want you to think about an illustration as we move forward. Think about a plane flying over the Atlantic going to London. How many people have ever been to London? A few hands go up. Okay. I want to get there one day, but and not anytime soon, not with the cost of travel. You're halfway across the ocean. All right, I've flown to Hawaii, so I know what it is to be over the middle of the ocean. I always wondered, what if the plane goes down? Not a, not a great uh, prospect, right, even if you survive. Um, it's not going to be a situation where you're going to do well. However, the plane goes down. Imagine there's three survivors. One is an Olympic swimmer. One is a mediocre swimmer, 
and one can't swim to save his life. The, the plane is starting to sink. The Olympic swimmer says, listen, I got an idea. Let's make a swim for the coast. Maybe we'll get out of this. Well, the guy who can't swim just drowns on the spot. He dies. He doesn't stand a chance. The moderate swimmer tries. He swims for about two hours. He gets, loses stamina. He goes down to the bottom of the ocean. The Olympic swimmer swims for 24 hours. He's strong. He's a triathlete. He only gets about three miles, and he gets exhausted, and he goes down to the bottom of the sea. None of us can make it. And in this situation, we see how necessary it is for us to be rescued. The only way any of those three survivors survive and live is if someone comes and saves them and rescues them. There must be a helicopter from the Coast Guard that comes, lowers the ladder, says, get on, get on the copter, let's get out of here. Someone must intervene. There must be a but God moment. And here we see the whole of the gospel in this but God. God does intervene. And that's exactly what it says here. If you look in chapter 2, verse 4, but God, and describes his perfections rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. That word saved, people wonder, what does it mean to be saved? It means to be rescued. We were doomed. We were going to sink to the bottom of the ocean, and God saved us. Why? We're told. Well, first of all, he does it. How does he do it? That's the first question one is. He does this by making us alive. If we're spiritually dead, we can't be saved unless we're first made alive. We need to be raised from the spiritual dead. It says we are raised up with him from the spiritual dead. He gives us new life. It is to experience the resurrection power of Jesus that our eyes may be open and set free from bondage. Also, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This refers to Christ's ascension. It means that we are so completely saved that we are already in heaven with Jesus. Now the bigger question, why? Why does God save us? We see how God saves us. He saves us by regenerating us through the new birth, by giving us his life so that we may behold with the eyes of faith and see the glory of Christ. But why does he save us? Not because we deserve it. No, we deserve judgment. No, it's because of God who is rich in mercy and his great love that he had for us. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. It tells us in verse 3, Blessing be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. It's in love that God predestines. It's in love that God had marked us out to save us. If it wasn't for the love of God, there'd be no hope for any of us. It is the love and mercy of God. He, he saw our miserable states and had compassion on us. And he rescues us. The text tells us that God is motivated by his own character, mercy, love, kindness, grace, and, 
And these are all inseparable and flow through each other. C.H. Spurgeon says this, because God is gracious, men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. And that brings us to the final aspect here of the salvation. This is all by the grace of God. Paul emphatically states we were saved by grace, not by works. When you work for something, you earn it and deserve it. When you get a gift, you didn't earn it or deserve it. And that is so imperative that we understand salvation is a gift from God. It says in verse um, 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. When you go to work and you put in eight hours, you expect to receive a paycheck. But when you receive a gift, people give it out of their generosity. Salvation is a gift. You can't afford to buy it. You do not earn it. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. Favored towards unworthy sinners. Only grace can rescue an unworthy sinner deserving wrath to eternal life. J.I. Packer states this, the grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners contrary to their merit and deed in defiance to their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. It surely is clear that once a person is convinced that his state and need are as described, the New Testament gospel of grace cannot but sweep him off his feet with wonder and joy, for it tells of how our judge has become our savior. This brings us to the point of faith. Where does faith come into all of this? Right, because... Often you've heard it said, God has done his part, now you've got to do your part, right? God has provided salvation. He, by grace, provided the atoning work of, of Jesus. Now you've got to do your part. You have to believe. What's the problem with this system? The problem is, is that if you take that position, then faith becomes a meritorious work. Faith becomes the work by which God must reward you with salvation, that contradicts everything we read before because there's nothing good we can do in and of ourselves. We're spiritually dead. How can a spiritually dead person contribute something that is meritorious to God? And that's where we have to see that faith in itself is a gift of God. Notice it says again in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That, that summarizes salvation. Saved by grace, saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is. That means the totality of it, a gift of God. If faith is a good work, then it would contradict verse 9. It's not a result of good works. Faith's function is not a work, but it is the way in which we receive the grace freely offered by God. It is putting out our hands and saying, I receive this gift, Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving me. God justifies sinners, not on the basis of the quality of their faith. No, it's based on the worthiness of the person we believe in and trust, that is Christ. 
Philippians 1.29 says it has been granted to you. It is granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Believing in Christ is something that's granted to us. God's grace is marvelous. It is amazing grace. What is the purpose of God showing such grace to unworthy sinners? Why would God save us? It's not about you and it's not about me. Let me make that clear. We are the direct beneficiaries of this, but it's all about God. It's so that God could show himself as altogether wonderful, altogether lovely, and altogether glorious. It's about his majesty and glory. It says in verse 7 that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It is, it is a demonstration of the goodness of God that how he lavishes his riches upon us. If you look in your Bibles, if you look in 1 Timothy 1.12, it says, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, notice the word, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. You see the purpose of grace that by God saving dirty sinners like Paul, by God serving filthy sinners like you and me, it is so that he can receive the glory. He says, I receive mercy for this reason. Not only that, he would be a perfect example that the king of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God wise, be honor and glory forever. Secondly, he saves us by grace so that no man should boast in his presence. D.A. Carson said, there will be no peacocks in heaven strutting about with their chest sticking out. We will all stand before Christ as worthless, casting our crowns before him. If faith were something we contributed to salvation, then we can boast. We can stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven, Lord? Because I, I believed in you, so now where's my reward? Far be it from that. Our faith is that which God works in us and we fall before him and say, you, O Lord, are merciful. You are gracious. You know, grace is offensive. And it's why so many people hate the gospel. It is the reason why so many people hate Christianity. You know who the hardest people are to reach? Religious people. Right? You could reach the the sinner that's degraded in, in, in drugs and alcohol and, and, and all kinds of dirt. You know why? Because they know they're a sinner. They know they need grace. 
The person who knows they're a sinner knows they need grace. I gave my testimony yesterday to somebody. Man, when God saved me, someone asked me, the person who presented the gospel said to me, where do you think you'll go when you die? And without hesitation, I said, I am going to burn in hell. Because I knew who I was. And I knew the, growing up a Catholic, I knew something about righteousness. And I knew I was condemned to hell. I know I needed grace. It's the self-righteous. It's those who have it all together. It's the people who, 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 who are outwardly very religious. It's, it's the people who go to church every Sunday. It's the people who go to synagogue every week. It's the people who, who give a lot uh, to charity. It's the people who, who are, are, are morally upright and pay their taxes. It's the people who've uh, gone through all of the sacraments of the church. Those are the hardest people to reach. Because when you say it's all of grace, you're offending that person. You're basically telling them all your religion is worthless. That's offensive. It's offensive to tell a religious person that they cannot achieve salvation on their own. But there's only two religions in this world. There's the religion of man and there's the religion of God. There's a religion of works and there's the religion of grace. Every religion in the world falls under the category of works-based religion. Roman Catholicism, Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, all the main monotheistic religions, Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Scientology, all religions of the world fall under that one category, works-based religion, the religion of man, what we could do to get right with God. There is only one religion, one way that's right. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the light. There's no way to the Father but through me. It is only through grace that we come to God. There is no access to God apart from grace. If it were any other way, then the gospel would be worthless. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says this, In verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are found to be sinners is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In that beautiful verse, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not nullify the grace of God. Notice that I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I want you to, that's a powerful statement. If you can work your way to heaven, then Christ died for nothing. The gospel's worthless. Let me conclude. When we sing of God's amazing grace, it is vast, it is free, it is immeasurable and glorious. We can never know the depths and beauty of his grace. 
However, however, friends, let us never pervert the grace of God as a grounds for license. Because God is gracious, that never permits us to live carelessly. It never permits us to live sinfully. It doesn't permit us to think it's all of grace. And so therefore, I can do as I please. Such is an error that we see quite frequently, not only in the early church, it was written of in the Bible, but even in today. It is called hypergrace. It is where we focus so much on grace that we fail to recognize that the, the, the blood-bought sinner where grace has been demonstrated responds to that grace with active obedience. I want you to look in the book of Jude. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, notice, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Perverting the grace of God. We've got to stand strong against such false teaching. That's why it says in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is actually in the Greek translated masterpiece. God is the supreme artist, and we are literally his masterpieces. He is molding us and conforming us into the image of his son. We are a work of his art. But it also tells us that we were created for a purpose, and that is for good works. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. It is the evidence that grace is flowing in your life. We all need grace and we all fail, which is why grace is renewed every day. But if grace has been shown to us, then grace will bear fruit of faith. Luther says this, faith cannot help doing good works. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. You see, our good works are wrought in grace. Our faith is wrought in grace. Everything we do is wrought in grace. As we conclude this sermon today, this final but God this Reformation Sunday sermon of the grace of God, I pray that each and every one of you would examine your hearts before the Lord. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care if you've been coming to church for one month or 30 years. What matters is, have you known the grace of God? Have you been forgiven? Have you been washed clean? 
Do you know the life of God in you? Do you know the presence of Christ in your life? Have you been set free from the bondage of the world and of Satan and of the flesh? If you haven't, today's the day of salvation. It's never too late. It's never too late until the day you breathe your last breath. When you die, it's over. It's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. But as long as you have breath in your lungs, every day is a new day. Every day is a chance to renew ourselves. Every day is a chance to come to the cross, to repent, and to believe in Jesus Christ. I don't know how much more I can express that point. But flee to Christ. Put your good works behind you. And even if you're a Christian for a long time, as I examine my own heart before the Lord, I'll be a Christian for 30 years soon. I'm always reminded of 1 Corinthians 3, where it says in those last days, our works will be tested by fire. And a lot of those works will go up in smoke. God knows those works that are truly wrought in him. That which is done truly for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. And I'm afraid many of us, from me to the pew, all of us will stand before God on judgment day and find that many of our works were done, tainted, and perverted by sin. Let's not rest in our laurels and our good works, but rest in the immeasurable, infinite, amazing grace of God. Just uh, two things before we close. Um, we have the boxes for Operation Christmas Child. Um, we brought them up from downstairs. So if you'd like to prepare a box, um, it's in the back by the offering um, box. And um, also, uh, you, can fill, you can do boxes online as well. So if you don't have time to fill up a box, um, please um, do the, the boxes online and they will, they will fill it for you. Uh, we've done it like that in the past as well. Um, the second thing is, please join us for a Reformation um, service at 4 o'clock at Red Mills Baptist Church. The address is in the bulletin, so if, if you don't have a bulletin, please, please grab